Now, it's communion today, just a reminder. So, I uh, just encourage you to go and get what you need um, for communion when we've, we'll have a hymn after, um, after today's message. Today's message, of course, is the first in our series on our theme, which is the theme of joy. Last week, Ross was talking about the choice to rejoice. He was uh, taking us through James and the Psalms, um, looking at, and it was actually a conversation with, there were two things that were an inspiration to have joy as the theme for this year. And the first was, uh, I asked Ross, and Ross came up with it, oh, perhaps joy should be the, the theme for this year. But the second thing was an article that I'll, I'll share a bit with you um, later in the message. But first of all, what is joy? What is joy? What's joy to you? How can we describe what joy is? There's, we speak a lot about having joy and our hearts being filled with joy, that there's a sense that the joy of the Lord is in us, and the joy of a newborn baby or the joy of time with family and friends. But what is it that joy is? So I thought I'd give it some thought and this is the best I could do, but you might be able to do better. And indeed, if you have a definition of joy, then please share it with me or write it in the comments down below. Joy is a thing that appears in the Scriptures many, 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 many times. And I've spent um, a good chunk of this week looking at the different Scriptures that mention joy in all of its different forms. But I think the best definition I can come up with what joy is at the moment is this. Let's see what you think. Joy is a deep sense of God's goodness and blessing regardless of circumstances. Joy is a deep sense of God's goodness and blessing regardless of circumstances. So, many of us, well, we know what it's like to be happy when everything's going great. We do, don't we? We also know what it's like to be miserable when everything's going great. We're capable of that as well, aren't we? But joy is that underpinning thing that comes from knowing that God's goodness and His blessing are on us, that God is good. Sometimes I'll meet up with John Scott, and he'll say, God is good all the time. And I'll say to him, and all the time, and he'll say back to me, God is good. It's that understanding that whatever happens and life can be tough and tragic at times, that actually God is good. And also that His blessings flow, that we experience His blessings in our lives. One of our favorite Psalms contains the phrase, children are a blessing. Not every time you'll speak to parents, do you, would you believe that from what they say? But we take a step back and all the ups and downs, children are a blessing. They bring us joy, regardless of circumstances even when it's tough. So, joy, I would argue, at the start of this, I would suggest that the start of this Advent is a deep sense of God's goodness and blessing regardless of the circumstances. Diane was walking through uh, the park the other, um, the other day, and uh, she met with someone who said to her, how's your 2020 been? How's your 2020 been? And I'm asking you the same question. How's your 2020 been? And I'm seeing some of you smiling because 2020 did not go as planned, did it? Now, for, 
none of us had the 2020 that we were expecting. We missed out on holidays, birthday celebrations were different, all sorts of things happened that were unexpected. Some of that we've been able to cope with quite well. Other things have happened that have been really, really tough. We're speaking about the joy of family, and one of the things that will bring me joy in the days to come is becoming a grandfather. We're really looking forward to the arrival of Nathan Alley's first. And my mom and Maureen are looking forward to becoming great-grandmothers. We've suggested they go out and celebrate and some way, some way, shape, or form that they can figure within the regulations. And Dan's looking forward to becoming a grandmother. Our kids are looking forward to becoming aunties and uncles. There's such a lot of joy around the arrival of a little one, just like there was joy for Elizabeth and John, for Mary and Joseph, as we think about the Christmas story. And we'll think of those a bit later. The arrival of a child is the fulfillment of the promise of new life that, that Jesus' arrival in the world speaks to so strongly as we enjoy the creative wonder of the life that we're called to. Children are a blessing. But this has also been a year of loss for many of us, a year of loss, loss of freedom, for some a loss of hope. For some of us, it's been the loss of someone that we love. We've We've been very focused as a society on figures of death that even though this year is not, has not been especially bad, I'm afraid to say, for folks dying, the, the COVID-19 pandemic has focused our minds on those who have been ill and who have died. At the start of the year, probably Britain's greatest living philosopher, I'm standing on other people's shoulders to say that, Sir Roger Scruton, passed away. He had had a chair um, in philosophy at the University of Cambridge for many years, a very learned man and a faithful, faithful Christian man, a man who understood the importance of family and of faith in God, of faith in Jesus. And one of Roger Scruton's um, sort of, uh, star students also passed away just earlier this month. And that person was this, Jonathan Sachs, as the former chief rabbi, also studied moral philosophy at, um, at Cambridge. In fact, back when he studied moral philosophy, it was actually called the moral sciences. You think back, back to the time when morality could be taught in the way that you perhaps teach the social sciences, that there was actually something to be taught as regards morality. And the last book that he wrote he didn't know this at the time, but the last book that um, Jonathan Sachs wrote was called Morality. In the introduction, he writes this, morality is not an option, it's an essential. And he speaks of the importance of morality in our public life, our life as a society. Morality being the thing that orients, orientates us towards the we and not just the I. It gives us an understanding of our obligation to one another, of what the right thing would be to do, not just for ourselves, but on behalf of other people. It's a powerful, powerful argument, and I'm reading my way through it. It will perhaps pop into to these messages as we head through Advent this year. To mark the passing of Jonathan Sachs, the spectator republished an article that Jonathan Sachs wrote for them 
back in February. And this was published in November. It's just earlier this month that Jonathan Sachs passed away. And in that article, Jonathan Sachs writes these words. Last Monday night and Tuesday, that's the 9th and 10th of March as he was writing then, were our Jewish festival of Purim, when we recall the events described in the book of Esther. It's the oddest of all festivals. There is rejoicing which starts a fortnight before at the beginning of the Jewish month of Adar. There's a celebratory meal on the day itself. We send charitable gifts to the poor and presents to friends. There's riotous noise during the reading of Esther, and whenever the name of arch-villain Haman is mentioned, and it's the one day in the year when it's considered a religious duty to drink slightly too much alcohol. This might fit within the conventional parameters of rejoicing, were it not for what the book of Esther records, the most drastic warrant for genocide in Jewish history. Haman's plan to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day. The plan was foiled, yet it's deeply strange to regard an escape from genocide as an occasion for rejoicing. What I think Purim is, is not expressive joy. We've got the quote up on the slide. Is not expressive joy, but therapeutic joy. The joy that defeats fear. You conquer terror by collective celebration. Precisely because the threat was so serious, you refuse to be serious. And in that refusal, you are doing something very serious indeed. You are denying your enemies a victory. You are declaring that you will not be intimidated. Someone once summarized the main Jewish festivals in three sentences. They tried to destroy us. We survived. Let's eat. Joy is the Jewish way of defeating hate. What you can laugh at cannot hold you captive. Wise words. Wise, wise words from our Jewish rabbi. The word joy in Hebrew, and I apologize, Sonny will be ready listening to see if I get this, um, I get this right, but the word joy in Hebrew is simcha, and its synonym is sasson, from which we get the English term sassy, by the way, and it occurs throughout the Jewish Scriptures. Is about 400 mentions of this throughout the Jewish Scriptures, not least in the book of Esther. The book of Esther records when um, the emperor, Artaxerxes, uh, is, is talked into giving a decree against the Jews by an evil actor called Haman. Mordecai is a righteous Jew his cousin, who he also has adopted into his family, so it's kind of like his cousin but adopted daughter Esther, becomes part of Artaxerxes' um, uh, harem. He, beco he becomes one of the queens. And throughout the story, 
Mordecai and Esther would have to do brave things in order to save the Jewish people. And Haman's plan to destroy the Jews is foiled. This is the festival of Purim that's celebrated in the spring. There are some, at the end of the, um, at the end of the book of Esther, there are scriptures that talk about joy, but for those of you who know the book of Esther, in all likelihood, you can think of Mordecai's words to Esther when he encourages her to speak, to communicate her mourning to the emperor on fear of death when he says, it's for such a time as this, for such a time as this. You know this story. And here later in the book of Esther, we have some quotes that contain the word joy. This is from Esther 8.15. Please read it with me if you want. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. From the next verse, for the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. They've been rescued from destruction. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became uh, Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. They'd realized the God of the Jews was real. They should celebrate annually in the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, at the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and the month when their sorrow was turned into, their mourning into, a day of celebration. And he wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy, giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor." Now, both those words, Simcho and Sasson, they, they are in a verse in Jeremiah as well, which is read at every Jewish wedding. They form a beautiful expression which is drawn from what the prophet Jeremiah said, again at the time of destruction and difficulty for the Jewish people when they're going to be carried off into captivity in Babylon. We can read these verses together from Jeremiah 33.10 and 11. Yet in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither people nor animals, there will be heard once more the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, and the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever." For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord. Joy. Joy, my friends, has deep, deep Jewish roots. The one who was promised is the son of David, the heir of David's throne, born in David's town by David's line. Joy. Joy is something that is understood in the festivals of our Jewish forebears. And remember, friends, that Jesus Himself was a Jew. He was a Jew, brought up in the worship in the synagogue 
going to the temple for the annual festivals, at which the instruction was to have joy, as we read earlier from the book of Deuteronomy, to have joy at the festival. That joy that belonged to the Jewish people came from their faithfulness to Him as they understood that deep sense of God's goodness and blessing despite their circumstances. Despite their circumstances. Now, you might be wondering when the first mention of the word joy is in the New Testament. And of course, the New Testament is written in Greek. So, the word there for joy is kara. And it first occurs in the Gospel of Matthew, which is, of course, the first of the books in the New Testament. And look where we find it. Read this with me. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. They were overjoyed. What bit of the story does this come from? Which part of the gospel story does this come from? The kings, the magi, the wise men. We don't know how many of them there were, but they bought three gifts. So if they were good, polite British people, there was definitely three of them, because they'd all need one each. And they made their way following the stars. They expected the birth of the king to be indicated in the heavens. A literal interpretation of the heavens declare the glory of God. And they make their way to King Herod because their first assumption is that the king who was to be born, the king of the Jews, well, the Jewish king might know something about it. But Herod didn't know anything about it, did he? But he was troubled by the portent. And so they make their way rejoicing. They're overjoyed. They're following. They've listened to what's been said to them. Um, indeed, Herod has said, look, when you find the place where the baby is, you tell me I want to go and worship him. Is that what Herod wanted to do? No. And so they go, they find him, they worship him, they enter, they give their gifts. But then an angel warns them in a dream to go back by a different road and not tell Herod. And what does Herod do in his wrath? He murders a generation of young people, of young boys in that area. And only the warning to Joseph to flee to Egypt as an exile, which should ring some bells with the story of the Exodus, only that saves Jesus. You see, at every time when God moves powerfully in the life of His people, those people are under threat. Be it the Exodus leading up to the Passover, which we will reenact in Jesus' reshaping of it in communion in a moment. At that moment in Esther, where the festival of Purim is celebrated because the Jews, just by the skin of their teeth, were not destroyed when they were in exile. It's an extraordinary thing that through the life of God's people, at the time of greatest threat, then King Jesus shows up. God shows up. But let those who rejoice in Him be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may rejoice in you. So we read in Psalm 5 at the start of our worship today. 
Joy is a gift in difficult circumstances. What Jonathan Sachs calls therapeutic joy, the joy that when it occurs, it occurs to dispel the fear that we would otherwise experience because of the circumstances that face us. It took some persuading. I needed to do some praying and thinking before I was willing to commit to joy as the theme for Advent this year because of the difficulties that we are experiencing. But I think the Holy Spirit is up to something. I was on my way to school to take, um, to do the school drop-off run, and I came across a farmer friend who was also taking his boy to school. And I asked him, I said, Tom, how you doing? And he said, just bought up the Christmas tree. <laughs> he just put up his Christmas tree. And no, no one of those fake ones, like a proper one. And when Dan and I were heading back, I said, he might need another one. Because you know what it's like with central heating and proper trees. I think we went through three trees last year before we found one that would keep its needles. I thought, that's fascinating. I'm seeing the Christmas lights appearing up in people's houses early this year. Not much waiting about. Why? Because I think folks know they need a celebration. And whatever regulations are governed, and whether you're going to take your own cutlery to your celebration, even though you probably don't take your own cutlery to the restaurant. Pause. The thing is, I think we know we need to celebrate. We know that the slaves on the plantations in the West Indies and in the southern states of the United States wrote spirituals. I mean, these were people who couldn't read or write, so they made them easy to remember. And they sang them on a Sunday because they knew what was coming on a Monday. Friends, it is at the time of our deepest suffering. It is at the time of the battle that the king shows up. And of course, in Advent, we give thanks for our deliverance because of the arrival of a king. Here's the thing. Advent is the time when we celebrate that the Jewish king that was expected arrived not just to rescue the people of Galilee and Judea, not just to rescue the tribes, not just to rescue the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but to rescue the whole world, and not just to rescue them from the Romans, not just to rescue them from oppression and poverty and taxation and hardship, but to rescue them from death and sin and brokenness and horror itself. That we can stand and rejoice in these days is because there is no addiction or heartache or suffering or bereavement can overcome Jesus' love for us. And that when we suffer and are oppressed, when difficulty comes our way, when death is near our house, we get to stand in the name of Jesus who owns the keys to death and hell. And when He opens that door to the place prepared for us, it's not just something that we'll do, but it is a place prepared for us 
in the recreated heaven and earth where there's no more plots against us, no more horrors, no more epidemics, no more restrictions for those things have passed away as John puts it in Revelation. So this Advent, I pray you'd know that. And the way that Jesus shapes that for us is He takes the Passover meal that was the meal of celebration that finally Pharaoh would let his people go and that they would be let loose to live the life that God had called them to. He reshapes that Passover meal into communion. And as I say repeatedly, the bread and the wine and the lamb now become the bread and the wine given to us by the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, as his cousin John would say, and who calls us to live a life that is unkillable in the truth of his resurrection. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the true King, the true Esther, He is the true one who comes. You think about the book of Esther and those celebrations of Purim that Jonathan Sachs brought us back to, in which the joy that defeats hatred and fear is expressed, that therapeutic joy. But Jesus in the real story is like the emperor, and he's also like Esther. He's also like Esther. A few years back, we did that True and Better series, and we said that Jesus was the true and better Esther, the one who in the place of her people is able to find redemption and salvation where nowhere else could. So may it be with us. And I pray that in whatever ways you and your family can figure out, you have a wonderful Advent this year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.